0: We're sometimes told that image is everything. One example that's sometimes cited is the first televised presidential debate in 1960. Most historians and political analysts agree that had the first debate between Kennedy and Nixon not been televised, Kennedy most likely would not have won the election. Nixon was ill that night, visibly sweaty, let alone his usual awkward, grumpy demeanor. Kennedy, of course, was smooth as silk, clear, handsome, and confident. Kennedy came away as the clear favorite. And even though Nixon likely won the next few debates, which weren't televised, Kennedy, of course, won the election. That first televised debate was a game changer in American politics. Now, I'm not inferring that the American public was duped or voted for the wrong guy. I'm certainly not inferring that Nixon would have been a better president than Kennedy. Sometimes the better man just happens to be more handsome. Sometimes the worst guy... Just happens to be more awkward. But not always. Not always. That's my point. Sometimes looks can be deceiving. Sometimes our conventions and perceptions get flipped on their ear. And yet we often remain doggedly committed to to making judgment calls that are only skin deep, that are only first impressions. Sometimes we we really do function as though image is everything. Turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. It's a chapter which powerfully reminds us to not judge by mere appearances. It reminds us that God doesn't operate like us. He sees and decides not with eyes, as we do. We learn this as we're introduced to the new and future king of Israel. God has rejected King Saul at this point in the story of 1 Samuel. And now he reveals to us a man of his own choosing, David. We'll read the last couple of verses of chapter 15. They really lead in to chapter 16. And then we'll read the first half of chapter 16, getting to the second half a little bit later. So chapter 15, starting in verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, "'How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? "'Fill your horn with oil and go. "'I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons.' "'And Samuel said, "'How can I go? "'If Saul hears it, he will kill me.' "'And the Lord said, "'Take a heifer with you and say, "'I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice.' And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab And thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We'll stop there. There are three different scenes, different places in First Samuel sixteen. We've read two of them so far. I think it'll help us though instead to break this down according to six different themes with a TH themes, not scenes. Now most of what we'll cover is in the first half of this chapter, which we've already read. We'll spend most of our time on the in the first half, and then we'll cruise through the second half on purpose. We'll see first, Samuel's unshakable sadness. Samuel's unshakable sadness is really the theme of the end of chapter 15, and it's also how chapter 16 begins. The prophet and the rejected king have parted ways never to see each other again. Samuel's grieved over Saul. And sometime later, we're not told the space of time between the end of 15 in the beginning of chapter 16, but sometime later, Samuel is still grieving. From one angle, Samuel's long grieving is commendable. I mean, God himself was grieved at the end of chapter 15. Samuel's grieving no doubt about Saul's sin. He's sad about sin's terrible consequences. No doubt he's mourning The state that the nation is in at this moment when the king is the rejected one. All that's commendable to be grieving over that. We can learn from that. We should grieve over sin. From another angle, though, Samuel's grieving is slightly misguided. Proof is that God gives a mild rebuke to it. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? God said. Saul continually did what was right in his own eyes. That was the state of the nation as the story of 1 Samuel began. That's the problem that needs addressing. And rather than fix it, Saul is actually demonstrating the problem. He, like the nation, does what is right in his own eyes consistently increasingly he's self-willed he's rejected the word of the lord and now the lord has rejected him from being king another will replace him samuel not only knows this he has spoken it he's the one who has spoken it to saul on god's behalf He also told Saul that the God of Israel doesn't regret or relent or change his mind. He doesn't go back in his word. This thing is going to stick. There is a way forward, but there's no going back. Samuel should know this. So his severe mourning should eventually turn to hope and expectancy. It should eventually be forward-looking because God has promised more to come. God isn't done. He has a plan. He has a man. And he's unfolding that plan more even now in this chapter. So we first see Samuel's unshakable sadness, but secondly, we see God's sure plan. God's sure plan God says to Samuel don't grieve anymore but verse 1 fill your horn with oil and go I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons I have provided for myself a king among his sons not just a different king not even just a different kind of king though that's true God is providing a a different king on a whole new basis. A king for myself. Back in chapter 8, when the people cried to Samuel for a king, they said, appoint for us a king. And they told him what kind of king they wanted. So in the same chapter, Samuel said to the people, it was your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And that's what God will give you. In chapter 12, when Samuel preaches to the people, he reminded them that Saul was the king whom you have chosen. Of course, God is sovereign in it all. He's directing it. He's behind it. He's hands-on in so many ways. But Saul was God's answer to their demands to have a king like the nation's. In that sense, Saul was their king, but now God is saying, I've provided for myself a king, a man of my own choosing. He's in Bethlehem. He's of the house of Jesse. It's one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel, go get your oil, go to Bethlehem, and I'll show you which one it is, you'll anoint him. Samuel's immediately nervous with this prospect. He says in verse 2, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. That's probably not surprising to us. Especially if we're familiar with what happens after the story. Saul often goes on the rampage. He'll, He'll often kill people that he shouldn't if they threaten his throne in any way. But this should be surprising to us as we hear it right here. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. If Saul hears about Samuel the prophet anointing another King or king to be, he will kill me. Don't forget, Saul already knows he's the rejected king. It's been repeated multiple times. God has said that he's tearing the kingdom from Saul and giving it to another. So here now, Samuel knows Saul is waxing worse and worse, and Saul will fight to keep. His throne, despite what God said, and he will fight to keep his throne even to death, even the death of God's prophet. This is a foreshadow of what's to come. Saul desperately clutching and clawing to keep his throne. And in all of it, he's opposing God, not just a prophet, not just circumstances. He's opposing God even though it's futile. So God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, not overtly announcing a royal anointing, but saying that you're there for a sacrifice. The story doesn't tell us about the sacrifice actually happening. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Samuel wasn't lying when he went into Bethlehem and said to the elders, "'I'm here for a sacrifice,' It just wasn't the whole truth, and that's okay. This anointing is on a need-to-know basis at this point. So God says, just make sure Jesse and his house are there, and I will tell you which one you should anoint. Now let me hit pause on 1 Samuel 16 for a bit, and let me show you just how sure God's plan is. You might have noticed that the location or the hometown of David was mentioned already a couple of times in 1 Samuel 16. Jesse, the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, verse 1. He came to Bethlehem, verse 4. If we read on in verse 18, we'll, we'll see again. Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Next week, Lord willing, when we see chapter 17, we'll see that David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. We'll see again in chapter 17 that David was about feeding his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And we'll see David introduce himself. I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehem and Jesse are getting repeated six times in two chapters. It seems superfluous, doesn't it? We'll turn back to the book of Ruth. One book before, one book to the left. Look at Ruth with me. Bethlehem and Jesse are mentioned in 1 Samuel. They're also mentioned in Ruth. Ruth was written after the time of David. Written after, but it's written about a time that's well before David. It's about a story that's well before David. Two generations to be exact. Eight times in the book of Ruth, Bethlehem is mentioned. Eight times Again, it seems superfluous. It's about a family that's from Bethlehem. They're Bethlehemites. But it just keeps getting repeated over and over. Bethlehem, 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 Bethlehem. And then you get to the end. Look at chapter 4. Verse 17. A son is born to this Bethlehemite family. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. And then it goes into a genealogy. These, the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. On and on it goes until you get to the last verse. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So there's this family in Bethlehem. It seems like an insignificant story. But this one gives birth to a son, And that will be the grandpa of David, the father of Jesse. And that's why 1 Samuel is emphasizing Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. Whether Ruth was written first or 1 Samuel was written first, it doesn't really matter. They both are trying to emphasize that this is all according to God's plan. That David isn't an accident. It's not arbitrary. It's not reactive. It's not as though God put an end to Saul's reign and then went, who's next? That one right there, that little guy. Yeah, we'll go with him. He was the plan all along. Bethlehem is a big deal in the Bible. And of course, not just because David was born there. Hundreds of years after the time of David and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Micah said, "'You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days.'" And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Another one coming after David, born in Bethlehem, just like his father David before. Hundreds of years after the time of David, and some 600 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Of course, this is getting way ahead of ourselves, isn't it? But that's the macro level of God's sure plan. Back to 1 Samuel 16. God has a sure plan, but Samuel Has a vain or fruitless search. That's the third thing Samuel's vain search. Samuel is introduced to Jesse and his sons, and in verse 6, his eyes lock on one of them immediately. He looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here's the one, he's the firstborn. He's probably the tallest, the strongest, maybe the most handsome, the most confident, a natural-born leader. I saw a documentary recently on Navy SEALs, and one retired Navy SEAL said, Navy SEALs can spot other Navy SEALs in public, just around. They just can see there's something about that guy. He's one of us. I don't know what that is, but this guy must have had it, Eliab. So Samuel thinks, surely, this is the one that God sent me to anoint. But does this kind of thinking ring any bells? Haven't we heard something like this before? Do you remember Saul's impressive appearance back in chapter 9? It said, he's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. A whole head taller. In the next chapter, he's introduced to the people. And it says, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. But how did it go with Saul? How'd that go? The leaders and the people wanted a king like the nations who will go out for us and fight our battles for us. So his handsome, tall, and strong ways looked promising. But we should contrast that with what Hannah prayed back at the beginning about how God works. She said, "'Not by might shall a man prevail,' Jonathan attested in chapter 14, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It doesn't matter whether his army is many or a few, the Lord can do it. We'll see next week in chapter 17, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Samuel knows all this in theory, but he just can't shake the M.O. An M.O. that we know very well, judging things merely externally. So Samuel gets all wide eyed about this Eliab, and God apparently whispers in his ear. In verse 7, God says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Rejected him might be a stronger way of translating it than we need to. It's not that God was against him. God's just saying he's not the one. And God explains, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, we don't want to forget that this is tied to a story, this verse 7. It's about a future king, right? A man of God's own choosing is going to be revealed, and we know it's David. But we should stop to reflect on verse 7 as simply an overarching principle that we need to apply far and deep in our lives. It reflects a human problem. And we could say, even more so, it reflects a human problem, especially in 21st century America. Man looks on the outward appearance. What's impressive to us? What grabs your attention? What garners your interest and respect? Who do you want to be friends with? Who, who do you say that about? Not to them right away, but, but in your mind you go, I want to be friends with that guy. The car, the muscles, the, the the personality. Man, he comes into a room and the room glows. Who will get our vote in the next election? How do you choose a mate, a spouse? Oh, I know no one says they intend to marry a girl who's hard on the eyes. No one probably should. But we should remember Proverbs that, that says beauty is vain. And a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. She's more precious than rubies. And she's rare. That's what we should be looking for when we look for a spouse. Might verse 7 relate to how you choose a Church. What if Desert Springs Church was 100 people or less? What if it was 100 people in this room? I've been in rooms like that. It can be awkward. What if our musicians were less talented? What if my beard? No, I I won't even go there. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. How do you choose a church? What's impressive in the Lord's work? How does a church choose its leaders? What basis does it use to say, that's our guy right there? Uh, Is he a a man who runs a big, successful business, and that alone? Or is he a man on his knees who weeps easily, worships fervently, and loves the flock? I can say, over the years at Desert Springs Church, our elders and deacons have comprised guys with PhDs and those with high school diplomas. They've been those of white collar and those of blue collar. The Lord looks on the heart. We should too. But that also makes us ask the scary question of what God sees in us if God looks on the heart. We look on appearances. God looks on the heart. So there's no duping him. You might have everyone fooled. You can fool mom and dad. You can fool, you can fool wife and or husband. You can you can fool the boss. You can fool everyone in your community group. There's no duping God. He sees us. And what does he see? Maybe a question we should also ask of verse 7 is: what am I longing to be? What am I working on? How am I judging myself? How am I assessing self according to mere appearances and the impressions and reputation that that others see and hear of me? Or is it the heart and the heart before God? Well, this principle of verse 7 becomes even clearer as the story of 1 Samuel 16 unfolds some more. Jesse parades each of his sons before the prophet Probably from older to younger. With each one, Samuel says, not this one. You can imagine Jesse scratching his head harder each time another one is told, no. I mean, okay, it's not the firstborn? Surely it's the secondborn. No? What must be the thirdborn? No? No? It's shocking each time. Seven sons pass before Samuel. And the conclusion, verse 10, the Lord has not chosen these. It's a scene right out of Cinderella, isn't it? That's where the Bible got this story, Cinderella. (laughs) Of course not. Even down to the, the one candidate that isn't yet in the room. That leads to the fourth theme of 1 Samuel 16, God's surprising choice. God's surprising choice. Look at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. The Hebrew can be translated littlest. There's one, the littlest and the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. David was such an unlikely candidate that he wasn't there, and no one thought to go get him. He's a child. He's the last born of eight. That matters nothing in our culture. It matters everything in theirs. But Samuel knows what God said. He'll be one of the sons of Jesse. There's only one left. Go get him. I'll stand. It could probably take a long time to go get David in the field with the sheep. I'll stand. I'll wait. Hurry it up. Go get him. Then read verse 12. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Don't get too entranced by that description of beautiful eyes and, and handsome. In the next chapter, it's his youth and his short stature that gets emphasized again. In this chapter, he's the youngest and the littlest. So despite his handsomeness, he's chosen. He's the least likely candidate. And yet, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. David is a surprising choice. Well, is it really surprising? Should any of this really be surprising? Isn't this the way our God loves to work? He loves to show himself strong to weak people in in an impossible situation. He loves to show off in all the best ways. God loves to work in ways we can't imagine. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He so often works in the inverse. He flips things around. He goes bottom up, not top down. You think of how God showed himself faithful and strong and glorious in those years of Israel leaving Egypt and traveling in the wilderness before the promised land. You think of how God granted the humble prayers of Hannah at the beginning of this book. Why her? God's doing something special in her. She's a nobody. She's from Bethlehem. Just like Mary. Why Mary? Little old humble Mary, not even married. And God blesses her. You see, as it was in his choice of David as king... So it also was in God sending his son Jesus. He came in poverty, in weakness, in humility, in servantry. His kingship was cloaked, and most didn't see it. Herod tried to kill him. The people around him, as he did miracles or taught, said, Where's he from? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Like, we saw him grow up. Really? Who does he say he is? They said, why does he eat with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes if he's a religious teacher? And they said, a Messiah can't suffer. A Messiah won't die. And they said, if you really are the son of God... Come down from that cross. They saw the cross as defeat. They saw the cross as stupidity. Ron read for for us earlier in 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross then, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What do you see when you... See Jesus in your mind's eye? What do you see when you see the cross in your mind's eye? Do you see the king? Do you see victory? Or do you see loser, defeat? Do you see not just a king and victory, but salvation? Dying in the place of sinners, taking their punishment, canceling their debt. That's power. We pray you would know the gospel like that, that it would be power to you. This is how God works. He works on the inverse. Get used to it. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs to know what's real and true and powerful Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God brothers and sisters this is your calling and your election consider your calling brothers Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's not why you were called. That's not why you were saved. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We, too, are God's surprising choice. Fifth, we see God's Spirit moving in this chapter. God's Spirit moving. Look at verse 13 and 14. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. God's spirit is moving, and moving in two directions, away from Saul and on to David in power. Spirit came upon Saul back in chapter 10, again in chapter 11. Like others in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul for a season, for a purpose, for a task. It wasn't back then like it is in the new covenant. What you know about the Holy Spirit and that permanent indwelling is not something that was known of old covenant saints, even though they were forgiven, even though God had circumcised the heart and not just the flesh. The Holy Spirit came upon them for a season, for a task. David, to my knowledge, is the only one in the Old Testament That has the Holy Spirit continually and permanently. It says in verse 13, from that day forward. But David's uniqueness in the Old Covenant is what makes the New Covenant teaching of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for all believers is what makes that so amazing, so incredible, so jaw-dropping. Back to Saul, though. Unlike New Testament believers and unlike David, too, God's Spirit withdrew from Saul. Even worse, verse 14, it says, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Some translations say evil spirit here. And evil is one way to translate this Hebrew word, but it's not the only way. I think harmful is a good way of translating that here in this context. It was a harmful spirit. Perhaps it was a demon. That was, that's one view. Some believe the spirit from the Lord is sent from the Lord, but it is demonic. Others believe it's sent from the Lord, and it's angelic. It's an angel. It could be either of those. And it could be neither of those. It may be not an external angel or demon, but something inward in Saul that God put within him or put upon him, an inward emotion, a psychological malady. Perhaps it was severe depression. Perhaps it was mild insanity. Maybe early schizophrenia. Maybe paranoia. We don't know. But regardless of the diagnosis or the means by which it came to Saul, we know it's from the Lord. That's explicit, from the Lord. God is behind it. It's part of his judgment upon Saul's waywardness. God is letting Saul's sin turn inward on itself like a black hole of sin and misery. How desperate his state. How desperate? Well, that leads us to the last thing. David's unique service. Only David can help. This is the final scene of the chapter. Let's read verse 15 down to the end. Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you'll be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, "Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep." And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David to his son, uh, sent them by David his son to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him." Now to understand this half of the chapter and its purpose in this chapter, I have to explain something about chronology in 1 Samuel. At the end of chapter 16, the pictures painted of an adult David in Saul's service, a, a personal musician to Saul, an armor bearer eventually of Saul, a man of valor, a man of war. A man loved by Saul and found favor with Saul. But next week, Lord willing, we'll see in chapter 17, that famous story of David and Goliath, David has a young shepherd boy. He's shepherding the flock. He's dismissed by his brothers. And Saul doesn't know who he is. What's with that? Well, The explanation is simply that they did not write history like we do today. And that's okay. The kind of history we're most used to is in a straight line chronology. You put everything in order and you don't take it out of order. That messes up with dates and things like that. They didn't care about that stuff though. The kind of history they wrote, in fact it's also in the Gospels at times, they thought in terms of snapshots. And then they put those snapshots, a story snapshot, They put them in general chronology. But they were okay with at times taking two snapshots and putting them together out of chronology if it helped to show something, if it helped to communicate something. So two snapshots that have the same theme or are contrasting themes can go together sometimes. That means that as we begin... Chapter 17, next week, will actually take a step back in the chronology from where we've been in chapter 16. But why? why? Why put these two pictures together? David anointed, and then David in Saul's service. Why put those together in the same chapter? Because it shows that even Saul at the beginning has to recognize David's blessings or really God's blessings through David to others. Saul is obviously unaware of that anointing that happened earlier. But David's usefulness to Saul is undeniable. Saul won't continue to appreciate David's usefulness and God's blessings through him. But he does now. It's obvious and unmistakable that God's hand is upon David, and uniquely so. David can do for Saul what no one else in the kingdom can, and even the godless king can spot it. That's why they're put together. These two snapshots are also put together because there's that contrast and that contrast contrast of the spirit the spirit rushing upon david in verse 13 and the spirit of the lord departing from saul in verse 14 there's contrast there there's a transition taking place the spirit's removed from saul and that means torment for him the spirit comes upon david and it means empowered service for him The Spirit and service go together. How do you think about the Spirit? The gifts of the Spirit? The gift of the Spirit? Even now in the New Covenant, you might think, God's presence, He's within me. Communion, fellowship. All that's good. It's true, it's in the Bible. But but don't forget gifting. Don't forget the Spirit is within us to empower us so that we serve. Those two themes of the Spirit and serving deserve our attention today because, as Ron mentioned earlier, this is what we call Ministry Fair Sunday. That means that after the service, we'll encourage you to go to the youth room and walk around tables that that represent ministries, different things that we're doing, different ways to connect, different ways to serve Let's not forget the Spirit comes to gift and empower that we might serve. And the same Spirit that uniquely gifted David to play the music that he played and to refresh Saul as he did is the same Spirit that we have within us. We have that same Spirit and more in the new covenant. And it's not just for our blessings like a river runs into a reservoir, but it's to flow and to flow to others. Let me read then as we close 1 Corinthians 12 about the spirit and serving. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's pray together. Father, help us in just a bit as we head over to the ministry fair and look around to rejoice in what you are doing and have done at Desert Springs Church in in a variety of ways. Almost no one in this room is familiar with all the different ministries represented there and the great stories that, that are behind them. We thank you for that. We pray for wisdom as we look at what we're doing, as we look at how we're serving, as we weigh time and as we consider our gifts, as we look at needs in the body. Give us wisdom. Direct our steps. Help us all, Lord, to rejoice And the fortress that you are for us in Jesus. The man of your own choosing. You have won the battle, Lord Jesus. And you are above all earthly powers. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Because you side with us. We can let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also Even if we're opposed unto death, Lord, your truth abides still. Your kingdom is forever. Help us now to sing of these words in spirit and in truth for your glory. Amen.